God, as we approach you as uh, your church, Lord, as a family, um, Lord, we want to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Lord, our hearts are a burden for Aaron and for her family as they grieve the passing of her mother this week. And um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, remind her of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would flood her hearts, her heart with your promises. God, that you would bring to her mind, Lord, your faithfulness. God, I pray that you would remind her that you are near to the brokenhearted. Lord, I pray that you'd remind her that you are the God of all comfort. Lord, that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding that's available for her. I pray that she would seek that. Lord, that she would come to you in prayer. Lord, that you would meet her right where she is in the pain and maybe even the confusion. And Lord, that you would truly deepen her trust uh, during this time. Uh, Lord, I pray as we look to your word now, God, that you would give us understanding by your spirit, that you would truly lead us into the truth, and Lord, that we'd walk out of this room changed, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, as we um, just continue on in our study of Nehemiah, uh, we introduced this book last week uh, and looked at um, just some key things going on throughout this book, key themes that we're going to be introduced to. We also looked uh, at kind of the historical setting of this book and a little bit about Nehemiah. And so as we kind of finish chapter one today, you probably noticed uh, that we're looking at Nehemiah's prayer and uh, we're going to be challenged in our own um, prayer life even today. And so just to begin uh, this morning, I wanted to just share uh, some, a study that Crossway Ministries um, has conducted, a survey of over 20,000 people. And it was really all about uh, people's prayer lives and their habits about their prayer life and barriers to their prayer life and um, even best practices about their prayer life. And I wanted to share just two results that I found um, fairly interesting. The first one is that there aren't a lot of people that would say that they are very satisfied with their prayer life. If you look at this, and I don't know if it's hard to see, but there, there were only about 2% of the individuals, over 20,000 people, who indicated that they are very satisfied with their current prayer life. That the majority of people have basically a moderate to low satisfaction with how often they pray. And I share that uh, with you this morning really to encourage you that if you feel like your prayer life is nowhere where it should be, uh, you're not alone in that. Like, like this is a common issue. This is a common struggle throughout the church, uh, really throughout church history even, that our ability to pray consistently um, is a struggle. And then the second result I found really interesting were common barriers to why we don't pray. And you'll notice here that the, the, the biggest reason people don't pray is because of distractions. Now, some of the other common reasons uh, have to do with uh, just an indifference, so lack of desire to pray. You have busyness, which we talked about last month, and then loss for words. I don't really know what to say when I pray. And of course, there are more barriers uh, to why we don't pray, but you look at this list and you could almost summarize it as the chief reason why we don't pray more is because of a lack of priority. If you really prioritize prayer, you're going to figure out a way to pray. You're going to find language to pray. You're you're going to protect your time praying so the the busyness and and the distractions don't get in the way, and then the desires will eventually come. And so I wanted to kind of share these two things with you this morning 
Because sometimes when we think about, um, you know, having a sermon on, on prayer and we think about what does it look like to pray, sometimes the sermon can sound like this. You guys don't pray enough. You need to pray more right? Like that's kind of the gist of it. Like it's this guilt trip about ways that we can grow in our frequency of, of praying. And I think that we need to hear that on one level. Like just to be honest, I need to hear that on one level. But I think what might be more helpful this morning is to look at Nehemiah's prayer, which is absolutely beautiful and convicting. And I want to, I want to look at it from the lens of, of opening ourselves up to being wooed into improving our prayer life more. And I want us to look at this prayer and understand who Nehemiah is talking to, the way he describes the God of his prayer, and then also to understand that prayer actually works. Like this, this prayer does something that alters the history of God's people. And I think when we see that and when we understand that, it's going to woo us into praying more consistently and praying more frequently rather than me kind of pounding on the pulpit saying, you need to pray more. All right, so that's what we're going to do. We're really going to see how Nehemiah shows us what should characterize our prayer life. Less about you need to pray more or say this than say that, but how would you describe a healthy, thriving prayer life? Well, what's the language that you would use? In other words, if, if six months from now, you would say, hey, Pastor Chris, I, my prayer life is, is healthy and it's thriving. Okay, let's say that you say that. And I ask you, what would lead you to saying that? What, what, would, what would describe that kind of, of prayer life? All right, so that's the angle that we're going to take this morning as we look at Nehemiah and what he prays about. There are five um, characteristics, I think, of a healthy, thriving prayer life from Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. Here's uh, the first one. I think a, a prayer that is healthy and thriving is marked by commitment. Is marked by commitment. I want you to imagine for a moment, just a hypothetical scenario. I want you to think through an area of your life that you wish you could change. You wish you could make it different. You could make it better. Maybe it's something about your relationship with God. Maybe it's something going on inside your own heart. Maybe it's about a, a certain relationship or your marriage or your kids or Maybe something about our church or our community or our world. Think about what you would want to change if you could change it. Now, within this hypothetical scenario, let's just say that you have a close relationship with the most powerful person in the world. All right, let's say you've got their trust, you have their, uh, their ear, you have influence with that individual. All right, now let me ask you this. What is your plan? Like, what's your first step in implementing the change that you want to see? What's your first move? All right, now, I wonder how many of us this morning would honestly say, yeah, the first thing that I would do is I would actually pray. Like, I just wonder, if you had that relationship with the most powerful man in the world, you would say, no, no, I'm first going to pray. See, in this hypothetical scenario, it wasn't hypothetical for Nehemiah. Nehemiah had this close relationship with the most powerful person in the world, the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer. He was with this man 24-7. And what we're going to see throughout this book is he had influence with the king and with the queen. He had their ear. And yet what blew me away in this first chapter is the first thing that Nehemiah does 
is he turns to God and he prays, right? He doesn't go to the king first, but he turns to the Lord and he prays. See, Nehemiah is showing us that certainly we can do more than pray. But what Nehemiah is showing us is that we surely cannot do more until we pray. That prayer is really an overriding theme of this book. This is the first of nine recorded prayers throughout the book of Nehemiah. And and this is a prayer that begins in Persia. And in chapter 12, he's going to be praying in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. His prayers are filled with adoration in chapters 8 and 9, filled with thanksgiving in chapter 12, filled with confession in chapter 1 and chapter 9, filled with petition in chapters 1 and 2. We're going to notice that Nehemiah's prayers are filled with pain and joy and protection and dependence upon God, commitment upon God. His prayers are both personal but also corporate. And what's interesting about the way that Nehemiah uses prayer is that it actually gives Nehemiah perspective. For Nehemiah, praying actually widens his horizon. It actually sharpens his vision and it dwarfs his anxieties. For Nehemiah, his his public life, what we're going to see him do and say as far as his leadership and his decision-making is really just the overflow of his personal life that was steeped in and shaped by prayer. That his devotion towards God, even his passion for God's glory, is expressed in how he prays. See, one thing that's so challenging when we look at Nehemiah's life here is that Nehemiah understood that any assignment from God that's going to be blessed, that's going to find favor, that's going to succeed— has to first start with prayer and be continually bathed in prayer. That's exactly what we see in chapter one. See, Nehemiah hears this devastating report about the people of God. He hears about the condition of the Jerusalem walls and, and the gates being burned down. But the first thing that he does is he hits the ground and he weeps, he fasts, and he prays. Now, this wasn't just like one prayer. But according to verse 6, Nehemiah has this rhythm of praying day and night. That that was a regular thing. It wasn't just a day or a few days or a few weeks, but Nehemiah actually has this rhythm of praying day and night for three to four months before he does anything at all. And we know that he does this for three to four months because chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that this happened in the month of Chislev which in our calendar, that would be November or December. So he hears the news, he begins to pray day and night, and before he does anything at all, as far as going to the king, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that it's the month of of Nisan, which in our calendar would be March or April. And so we've got three to four months of Nehemiah who is committed to prayer. And, And what's even more fascinating about kind of the timeline here is that Nehemiah spends 90 to 120 days praying like this. Do you know how long it took to actually rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? It only took 52 days, according to chapter 6, verse 15. And so you take a step back and you think, this man spent double the amount of time praying for this assignment from God than actually uh, doing it, actually completing it. See, he's showing us his utter commitment 
to praying. And I personally was convicted by this. I, I was thinking about this and in my own life and ministry. I was thinking about my own ministry, thinking about how much time I spend sermon prepping or how much time I spend with ministry philosophy or how much time I spend with people. I thought, how much time do I spend praying? Like, does it reflect the ratio that Nehemiah has here in chapter one? I thought about my own personal life. I thought about my, my own kids, my girls. I'm thinking, I, I want them to know Jesus. I want them to know Jesus in a way that just captivates their heart. I don't want them just to know Jesus as this guy that daddy preaches about, but I, I want them to know Jesus in a way that transforms them and captivates their entire being. But how much time do I really spend praying for that? And I thought about our church. I thought, how much time do we spend as a church praying together? I thought about individuals. I thought about you as a, as a person, as a follower of Jesus. How much time do you spend praying before God? And I wonder if we spend more time doing more of the action of God's assignment to us than, than we do praying. And, and I thought to myself, I, what does that actually reveal? Like, does that reveal that we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God? You know, I, I try to say this every time I preach a, a sermon on prayers, that the things that you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. But the things that you don't pray about are the things that you trust in yourself to handle. And Nehemiah is showing us here that, yes, we can do more beyond prayer, but we should not do anything until we pray. And so if you find your, your prayer life inconsistent or infrequent, it might be because you believe prayer is supplemental instead of fundamental and instrumental. And what's really convicting, at least in my own life, is that the frequency of your prayer actually reveals what you believe about God, how you view God, which leads us to number two here. The second, um, I think, really helpful characteristic of a thriving prayer life is that it is theologically grounded with adoration towards God. Now, don't, don't, don't allow the word theology to, to kind of scare you a little bit. What I mean by that is, is our prayers need to be grounded in the word of God. I, I was so struck by Nehemiah's prayer and how biblical it is. Nehemiah, for uh, most of this prayer, is actually just quoting from Scripture, He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and, and Leviticus chapter 26. And I found that convicting on one level, but also helpful, because as we just saw with the Crossway study, one of the barriers to our prayer life is sometimes we don't know what to say. Sometimes we feel like we're kind of saying the same things over and over and over again, kind of like a robot. But one solution that Nehemiah helps us with is to use the word of God as the language to our prayers. I found this quote by Donald Whitney, who I think has written one of the best books on how to use the Bible in our prayer life called Praying the Bible. He says this, he says, what you are doing is you're taking words that originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through your heart and mind back to God. And by this means, his words become the wings of your prayers. And Nehemiah does just that. Like, I love his prayer because it first starts with God. 
He doesn't immediately go into his list of things that he wants God to fix or things that he wants God to do. The most powerful prayers always begins with an adoration of God. In fact, what you believe about God is always revealed in your prayer life, which is abundantly convicting. And if that's true, what what can we learn about God from Nehemiah's prayer life? What do we see in here? Well, verse 5 shows us three things about God, kind of a theology of God here. First, according to Nehemiah, God is sovereign and in control. That's expressed in this phrase that God is the Lord and God of heaven. This is Nehemiah proclaiming that God has created it all. Therefore, God rules over all. Therefore, God is sovereign and in control of all. Secondly, we notice from Nehemiah's prayer, again, still in verse 5, is that God is all-powerful. This is expressed in that phrase, great and awesome God. This is a fascinating Hebrew phrase. It occurs 14 different times in the book of Nehemiah, and it means something that is awe-inspiring. All right? It's something that creates astonishment and wonder in someone's heart and someone's life. It's an amazing phrase in the Hebrew. Nehemiah is using that to express how stunned he is about how great and awesome and powerful God actually is. He's filled with awe. And then thirdly, we notice, according to Nehemiah, that God faithfully loves his people. He's a God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. And that Hebrew word there for love is hesed, which means a, a covenant of love. It contains the idea of, of loyalty, kind of no matter what. And Nehemiah is expressing that God will keep his covenant. He'll keep his promises because of his unchanging character. Now, what is, what is Nehemiah really doing here? Nehemiah is not simply reviewing his theology just to review his theology. I think Nehemiah is doing two things uh, with, with kind of talking about who God is. The first thing that he's doing is that Nehemiah wants his honesty, his transparency, and his rawness before God to be shaped by who it is that he's talking to. Okay, in verses 6 and 7, he's going to get pretty transparent about his own sin. He's going to start confessing his sin. And so what Nehemiah is doing here is he's using the word of God as language about who it is that he's talking to because how we view God determines not only the frequency of our prayer life, but also the content of our prayer life. In other words, like, yes, we want to be raw before God when we pray. We want to be honest. We want to be transparent. We want to pray from the heart. But the reason why we can pour out our heart before God is because of who it is that we're actually talking to, which demands we need a theological understanding that serves as the foundation for how we pray. See, for Nehemiah, Nehemiah's theology about God is not that God is an emotionless robot. He is not a vicious dictator. That for Nehemiah, he is a God of steadfast love who keeps his covenant. Therefore, Nehemiah can pour out his heart before God without fear and without rejection. 
That's so beautiful because, look, if Nehemiah's theology was off, if, if Nehemiah thought that God is a God who only hears prayers and only acts on prayers based on people's spiritual performance, then Nehemiah is going to hide his sin. He's going to cover it up. He's not going to be transparent with it before God because God's going to punish him because of that. But no, Nehemiah's theology is driving the content of his prayer life because God hears his prayers, God blesses his prayers, not based on his own performance, not based on the performance of Israel, but based on God's unchanging character. Look, College Park Fishers, that is such good news for us when you think about our own prayer life, that we can be painfully honest before God when we pray with the guarantee that God is not going to ignore us God is not embarrassed by it. God's not going to punish us because of it. We can pour out our hearts before God and express our questions, express our concerns, express our overwhelming emotions and our shameful sin with the guarantee that God listens, God cares, God is active in our prayer life, and that God is actually fighting for us. But look, it's not because of you It's not because of your performance, not because of your goodness or your ability to to hold fast, but it's because God is committed to his promises and he is bound by his unchanging character. I think Nehemiah is, is kind of guarding his heart here in reviewing his theology so that he can pour out everything in his heart before God. So that's one thing that he's doing. The second thing Uh, I believe Nehemiah is doing, is he's creating healthy perspective. I think beginning our prayers with an adoration towards God is a way of putting our problems into proper perspective. I think seeing the bigness of God, our, our big theology, will shrink our problems before him. See, Nehemiah had just gotten news about the condition of his people devastating news. These are real and they are big problems. You've got the gates that are burned, the walls that are destroyed, the people who are in shame and disgrace. They're in captivity. Oh, and by the way, the king that he's got this, uh, the king that he's got this great relationship with decreed all of that to happen according to Ezra chapter 4. Like, those are big problems to have. And yet we see Nehemiah, first thing that he does is he prays. And he prays knowing that he cannot be faithful to God if his problems are bigger than the God that he's trying to serve. And so he's praying these theologically robust, biblically grounded prayers to remind his own heart of God's infinite bigness and the fact that there is nothing that is too hard for God. So I think sometimes we, we don't pray, and we, we don't say this out loud, surely, but sometimes we don't pray Because in our own hearts, the problems that we face are bigger than the God that we serve. And we're not going to voice that. But sometimes we feel that. Sometimes we feel like, man, I I don't know if I can can pray this because does he really hear me? Is he going to do anything at all? Can God really fix this problem? And, and, And that's revealing that our problems are bigger than the God of Scripture, And so look, if if you have a a problem in your life, you've got issues that are going on that feel like there's no solution to it inside, there's no end in sight, 
Can I encourage you to meet those problems head on with the God of Scripture? To to meet those problems with, with having a rich theology that there is nothing too hard for our God. That the psalmist actually describes God as wearing the belt of strength. That he's got these shoulders that are so broad that you can bring anything before him and God looks at our requests and does not shy away from them. See, I think we need to remind ourselves of who it is that we are talking to. And look, this may not immediately solve your problems, but what it will do is it will help you deepen your trust and your faith in a God that never fails. And so having biblically informed prayer is a sign of a healthy, thriving prayer life. Number three, another characteristic of a thriving prayer life is being honest about sin, being honest about sin. Remember, one of the key themes of this book is we're going to learn what to do with our own personal sins and even our, our corporate sins as the people of God. And confession of our sins is one of the most important steps in the process of repentance. And this is connected to the last point because you're never going to get to this point of confessing and owning your sin unless you see God for all that he is in his holiness and his greatness. And so Nehemiah sees God for all that he is. And in verses 6 and 7, he boldly confesses the sin of the people of God, but also his own personal sin. Now notice, he doesn't justify his sin. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't minimize his sin, but he owns it before God. This is very similar to what we see uh, with Ezra. In Ezra chapter 9, the priest of Israel during this time It says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before God? Have you ever been so convicted about your own sin that you just own it before the Lord without any disclaimer to it, without any excuse making? Are you that specific with your confession of sin? Why is this important in our prayer life? This is important because only when we get to the root issue of our problems does transformation actually occur. Only when we get underneath the circumstances does change take place. See, sometimes we pray about things and we tend to only highlight God to work on changing circumstances or changing our situation when there's something underneath the circumstances that's driving the circumstances that we need to invite God into that space. And usually some of the negative uh, uh, circumstances in our lives are caused by sin that's going on in our lives or in the lives of other people. See, notice what Nehemiah is doing in this prayer. Nehemiah is honest in assessing the real problem going on within Israel. See, Nehemiah understood that the real problem is not the physical walls of Jerusalem that need to be rebuilt. That's the circumstance. What's underneath that is the spiritual condition of God's people. It's what's going on inside the walls of their own hearts And Nehemiah invites God into that space and confesses the sin of his people and his own sin in his own life 
in order for God to transform and to implement change. See, Nehemiah knows that there are problems with leadership and organization. He, he knows that that's one of the barriers to completing this project. He knows that they need a lot of resources in order to make this project happen. But Nehemiah addresses the root issue, which is their unbelief that God is all that they need. And so he prays. He says, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. See, our great need when we pray is oftentimes not having our problems fixed or our circumstances to be changed, but it's applying that soul-level forgiveness that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus and applying that to our sinful disobedience in the act of confession. And that's when transformation starts to occur. That's what Nehemiah is so burdened about. And so having honesty about sin is a sign of a healthy, thriving prayer life. Number four, though, another characteristic of a healthy, thriving prayer life is having just the, this consistency about recalling God's promises even as you pray. I love verses 8 through 10. I, in particular, I love how verse 8 begins. Nehemiah, in verse 8, the first word there is remember. And I love that he's asking God to remember something. Now, obviously, God does not forget things. God does not have a bad memory. I think what Nehemiah is doing is he's trying to recall God's faithfulness in his own heart and his own mind by remembering God's promises. In verses 8 through 10, he's quoting Leviticus 26 to remember God's promise of restoration. And Nehemiah is recalling this for a reason. He, he's trying to pray God's faithfulness into his heart. He's trying to, to preach into his heart the things that he knows are true. Nehemiah knows that God's faithful. He knows that God keeps his promises. He knows that God will do what he says. But there tends to be a gap in our lives that the, the vehicle of prayer fills between what we know and what we are actually experiencing in our lives. See, Nehemiah is not asking God to remember this. He's doing this so that his trust in God would be strengthened. See, how else, how else does your faith grow? How else is your trust strengthened when there are problems all around you? When you feel like there are trials that, that, that are surrounding your life, how can your faith be strengthened? Nehemiah is showing us that it is through recalling the promises of God and reminding our hearts of his faithfulness. And the way that we do that is through prayer. It's taking what we know about God and pressing it deeply into our hearts through this mysterious and spiritual conversation that we call prayer. And the question is, is are you doing this? Are you doing this regularly? in your prayer life. It's been reported that since 2005, Americans have over $45 billion that are left on unused gift cards. $45 billion, kind of blew me away when I looked at that. And it's interesting because the gift card 
is still one of the most uh, commonly requested gifts, you know, for, for birthdays and for Christmas, and yet it is easily forgotten, and it is oftentimes left unused. And I was thinking about that stat, and I was wondering, do we do the same things with the promises of God? Like, it's been estimated that there are over 3,000 promises of God in the Bible. And I wonder if we do the same thing with gift cards, where the promises of God are easily forgotten. They're oftentimes left unused. And I just wanted this morning, do we need to be reminded that the promises of God have been purchased by the redeeming blood of Jesus at great cost, that he has done this so that as believers in Jesus, all of these promises are ours. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of the promises of God have their yes and amen in Jesus, that these exist in order to strengthen your trust in God. And the way that we do that is we take the promises of God, what we know about God to be true, and we press it deeply into our hearts in the act of intimate prayer. See, for example, take, take the promise in 1 John 1.9, 1, one of my favorites. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see the promise there? If you confess, what will God do? He will forgive you. He will cleanse you of all of your sin, past, present, and future sin. Now, why? He does this not because you are so good, not because you are so faithful and just, but because God is faithful and just. And when we call out to God in prayer, in confessing our sins, we're taking the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, the things that we know about God, and we're pressing it deeper into our hearts. See, God will forgive you of your sins because he's just. In other words, he has already punished all of your sin on Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so therefore, it would be unjust for God to punish your sin again upon you. And praise God for that, that there is no more wrath left because Jesus absorbed it all. He endured all of our punishment on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And so when we have this interaction with God of confessing our sin, he attributes the justice and the faithfulness of who he is in the forgiveness of your sins that was achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. See, in that interaction of prayer, taking a promise, you're pressing who God is deeper into your heart, which actually allows our trust in him to deepen. Use the promises of God as the foundation of your prayer life. Fifthly here, the last thing I want to point out about a thriving, healthy prayer life is you have bold requests. I mean, you, you go after the throne of God with all that you have. And I love uh, seeing this in Nehemiah's life. He does this both uh, personal requests, which we'll get to here in a moment, but he also does this with corporate requests. Now, let me remind you, Nehemiah is not the pastor of the day here. He's not the priest. He's not the prophet. That's Ezra and Malachi. He's a layman. He's got a secular position, and yet he spends time in his prayer interceding for the people of God, 
asking God to remember promises for his people. Look, just an encouragement for you to make sure that in your own prayer life, you're not just praying for your own life, for your family, for your friends, for your work, but please pray and intercede for your church. Please pray for your pastor. I desperately need it. And to make sure that you're interceding consistently, not just for your own issues, but for the issues of others. That'll also help shape your perspective. But notice verse 11, the second half here, really interesting pivot that takes place. See, after Nehemiah asked God to be attentive to his prayer, the prayer of his servants, he then comes before God and he asks God for success. Isn't that interesting? He asks God for success because he's about to approach the king and he's got a big ask. He's got a huge, huge request that he's about to approach King Artaxerxes with. And so he's asking for success. See, this for me felt bizarre. This felt, this kind of rubbed me the wrong way because of our our flavor of evangelicalism, our, our tribe of evangelicalism, if you will. Like we, we look at success as kind of a dirty word. Like, no, no, we don't pray for success. We pray for faithfulness. We pray for, you know, faith in God to be trusted. And so we look at this and we think, no, no, this is prosperity gospel. This is name it and claim it kind of stuff that's going on here. But I want to point out what this word actually is referring to before we jump the gun. This word success is not a worldly success, but this word success is actually the same word in Psalm 1-3 for the word prosper. Psalm 1-3 says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now think about this for a moment. What does this person in Psalm 1 who is described as delighting in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night, what is he or she prospering in? It's not prospering in making a lot of money, in acquiring all kinds of possessions, having a huge house or a lot of cars. He or she is prospering in doing the will of the Lord. He or she is succeeding or prospering in the way of walking in righteousness. And so applying that word to Nehemiah here, Nehemiah's request is a request for the will of God to succeed and to advance. The success here he's asking for is favor before King Artaxerxes so that God would receive glory. He's not coming before the king here wanting success for a promotion or for a raise but he wants the purposes of God to go forth. And look, I was thinking about this for a moment, and I was wondering if God is truly driven by his own glory, right? Isaiah 48, 11. If if the why of what God does is to maximize and advance his glory, then the way that God answers prayers, our prayers, is through the filter of what will maximize glory unto himself, And that should shape the way in which we bring bold requests before God. As we bring our requests before God, sometimes we don't know what's going to give God more glory with this or that. And so I want to encourage you, it's good to pray for that job promotion. It's good to pray for the health of your kids. It's good to to pray for different sporting events and the outcome of those sporting events. As long as it's being driven 
for what will maximize the glory of God in and through that request. That the motivation of your request should not be for your comfort or for your success, but for the glory of God to be magnified. That's what he's doing here. And I love the boldness. I love what Nehemiah is doing. He's not just praying for favor and success. Nehemiah is praying for something that only God can do. He's praying something that if it were to happen, the people of God and the watching world around them would say only the God of heaven could have done that. And I love that that kind of metric for how we need to approach God in our own requests. Because he's about to approach the king for him to overturn this amazing decree. That's risky. That is dangerous. That is so bold and sacrificial because he could lose his job for this. He could lose that cushy job with drinking the best wine and, and having the best food and having the ear of the king. But in order for Nehemiah to pray this, and this is what's going to challenge us this morning, for him to pray this, he had to be utterly convinced that God not only will hear his prayers, but that God was powerful and big enough to actually And look, that's the challenge for you and me this morning. Do you truly believe that when you pray, the God of the universe bends his ear down and hears you and that he's powerful enough to do what you are asking him to do? See, that's really what separates us from the world. That's really the difference between us and the world around us is that God hears us and that God listens, and that God is on the move. And so the question that we have to wrestle with as we close this morning is, why don't we pray more? Why don't we pray more? Is it because we don't believe God hears us? Is it because we don't believe God is powerful enough to work in what we're asking him to do? Do we not pray more because of other distractions or other things that seem more important? So I think when you get down to the root of it, there's either unbelief or there's some sort of sin that's driving our inconsistency to prayer. And that's true for all. That's true for your pastor this morning. There are things that, that keep me from praying more that I need to confess, that I need to repent of. Because if I believe in who God actually is, I'm going to pray more. You're going to pray more. And change and transformation will only take place when we confess the root of the problem. So let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you. Lord, that you hear us. God, what an amazing reality. The one who is outside of time and yet in every moment of time at the same time. Lord, you are the God of heaven and earth. And yet you hear us praying. And you love to hear us praying. You delight in the prayers of your people. God, I pray that all that we've seen in Nehemiah 1 would help shape us, be a people who are praying consistently. God, that you would do a work in all of our lives, in my own life. Lord, so that we might seek your face. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.